from your outline, you can see that we're going to work on Zephaniah 3, verses 11 to 13 this evening. And I've labeled this uh, narrative time and narrative space. And I'll explain uh, why I'm doing that. As you look at the prepositional phrases that frame verse 11. Now, I've arranged them on your outline as if uh, everything between is also part of verse 11. It's not actually part of verse 11, but it's part of the larger paradigm here, so that's the reason I've done that. Nonetheless, you have the phrase in that day that begins verse 11, which is narrative time. And at the end of verse 11, you have the phrase, in my holy mountain, or in the mountain. Now, you can translate the Hebrew preposition either in or on. It depends upon the context or what makes the better English reading. I'm choosing the consistent in translation for the preposition here because it features that in narrative time and in narrative space pattern that I'm attempting to emphasize. I think also that the prophet is attempting to emphasize that. And so that's the reason that I'm using the consistent in, though some of your translations may say in in one place and on in another or vice versa. All right. Now, obviously, the first blank there is in that day. And as you go down to Uh, The next in that, it's in that mountain, which is at the end of that clause, that verse. And in between, we have a series of negatives. The negatives begin in verse 11. In New American Standard, no shame. Actually, I'm going to combine that with another word which we have found previously in this third chapter, verse 1, no shameful rebellion. Now, the second negative is there will be no haughtiness, no haughty pride. You don't see a not there uh, but it's included in that uh, never again phrase. So in this day, in this narrative time, and in this narrative space on the mountain, there will be no shameful rebellion, no haughty pride. And then in verse 13, there will be no wrong, no wrong doing. And also in verse 13, we actually have three Hebrew negatives here, uh, three not words, no deceitful lies, and finally at the end of verse 13, no trembling, no terror of trembling, no terror of quaking in fear and trembling. All right, so there's the basic pattern of the section. 
<clears throat> this is a reverse paradigm. And what Zephaniah is doing here is indicating the reverse of what is happening in the narrative space and narrative time of his own day. The reverse of that he projects in these three verses. He prophesies the opposite of or the reverse of what is going on in his time, what is going on in the space in which he lives. He, he prophesies the reverse of what is going on in the 7th century B.C. and in Jerusalem, capital of Judah, the narrative space in which he lives. All right. Now, if this reversal is going to take place, then we ask, who is the agent of that reversal? And who would you suggest? The Lord, God himself. God is going to bring about this reversal. The reversal of the events of narrative time and space in Zephaniah's day are going to be transformed, reversed, changed, altered, transformed by God's divine agency. And how is he going to do that? The act of this reversal is described in verse 11 and in verse 12. In fact, it's described in reverse phrases. Reverse verb plus prepositional phrases. So let's take verse 11 first. The act of reversal which God will perform from verse 11 will be to do what? March? Remove from your midst. Correct. Remove from your midst. Now, the word from your midst, it's those three words are one word in Hebrew. They're actually three words packed into that one word, that Hebrew uh, form that I've placed beside verse 11. That word is pronounced mikirbeik. Mikirbeik. Now, we have a little bit of fun with Hebrew. Because Hebrew's kind of a, a stick it on and take it off language. So this word has a beginning letter and an ending letter that looks like an upside-down hockey stick. And actually, the beginning letter is the preposition from, and the ending letter, the upside-down hockey stick, is the pronoun you. And in between is the noun, kerev, the three letters between the beginning and the ending letters means the midst or the middle. So you see what Hebrew has done by an economy of uh, packing things together. 
they stick a preposition by a single letter on the front of a word, and so they give you the preposition, from, midst. And then they stick the pronoun on the end of the word, so that just in one word, you get the economy of three. From, midst, your, or from, your, midst. The, the little mem, that, that beginning letter is called mem in Hebrew. It's also transliterated as the letter M in English. It's called a preformative. A preformative. They place it on the beginning of a word in order to signal, in this case, a prepositional phrase. All right. So you learned a little bit of Hebrew. Uh, it's actually a fun language. Uh, because of this kind of interesting way of compiling uh, words on top of other words. Now, in verse 12, we have the reverse. God, in the act of reversal, will remove from your midst. But in verse 12, he will leave in your midst. I should say remove from your midst. We need to get the proper preposition there because that M, that mem preformative means from. Remove from your midst, but leave in your midst is correct in verse 12. And notice once again, you have that same form as we had in verse 11. The three consonants between the beginning letter and the ending letter are the same. They change, the ending letter is the same, the upside down hockey stick, but the beginning letter is different. And this word is, would be, would be pronounced vekirbeik, vekirbeik, and it's a base preformative. If you know a little bit about the Hebrew alphabet, the first letter is aleph, the second letter is base. The aleph is transliterated like an A, and the base is translated like a B or a V, depending upon whether it has a dot in the middle of it or not. So, we have the same form that the three letters in the middle mean midst. The uh, hockey stick, upside down hockey stick on the end, once again, means your. But now we have the... Uh, base at the beginning, which is the preposition for in or on. In fact, it's the same preposition at the beginning of verse 11, in that day, bayom in Hebrew, and in that mountain, behar, on the mountain or in the mountain. All right, now, notice in the New American Standard, if you have it, or maybe some of your other versions also have it. In verse 12, the translation of that first line is, I will leave among you. Now, that's a very weak translation of this Hebrew word that you see there that I've placed uh, at verse 12. And it's a weak translation because it doesn't support what I'm trying to point out. So obviously it's weak because it's not doing what I want it to do. But it's also weak because, as you can see, we've got actually three words in one, as we had three words in one in verse 11. So let's be consistent. Let's be consistent with our translation and give the three words 
that are there in the Hebrew form. So up in verse 11, we had from your midst, three words, out of that mikirbeik. Now here in bekirbeik, we've also got three words. But the first word is not from, it's in. So from your midst, in your midst. And when we do that, you see the precise symmetry. You see this precise parallelism. You see precisely what Zephaniah is doing. He is lining up this pattern of reversal by using the same type of prepositional phrase form. One word, three English words. One word, three concepts. One word, three other related forms in that one Hebrew word. So among you just doesn't cut it here. Okay? So, you know, I'm forced to write a letter to the editors of the New American Standard. They need to improve this verse. Well, I'm sure that they're done improving. But at any rate, get my point. Parallelism is important. All right, the agent then of this reverse paradigm is God himself. The act of reversal is removing on the one hand and leaving on the other. Removing from the midst of this narrative time and space and leaving in the midst of this narrative time and space something else. Now, there's a reflex here. Here, this reversal is dealing with Israel-Judah. Verses 11 to 13 are treating the reverse paradigm with respect to Israel and Judah. If you turn back to verse 8, we also have a reverse paradigm. There, in verses 8 to 10, it's not Israel and Judah. Last week we were talking at the end of our discussion about these verses, and we said they're focused on what or on whom? On the nations, on the nations. Now, we therefore have a reflex. That is, we have a reflection. That which is true with respect to the nations is also true with respect to Israel, Judah. That which is true with respect to Israel, Judah is true with respect to the nations. There's a reverse paradigm with respect to the nations. There's a reverse paradigm with respect to to Israel, Judah. They reflect upon one another. They are mirror images of one another. But even though the nations are reflecting upon Israel and Israel is reflecting upon the nations, they are both being reversed by the act of God. Where is the true mirror reflex? Is it in the nations and in Israel, Judah? Was the true reflection somewhere else? It has to be in the gospel. Not the gospel. The gospel isn't here per se. But who is here? Terry? God himself. So the true mirror reflex is God himself. In other words, God in reversing their paradigm, is bringing them to reflect himself. He is bringing the nations to reflect himself. He is bringing Israel, Judah, 
to reflect himself. <clears throat> this pattern is anchored in what God himself is doing. That's the reason that we pointed out that he is the divine and supernatural agent of this reversal. He is, with respect to the dynamic of this reverse paradigm, he is the center. He is the focal point. He is the very central focal point of this patterned reversal. Yes, Randy. Well, he may be or he may not be, but we'll think about that, okay, as we go on. But I like, uh, I like the fact that you're thinking eschatologically. How can he reverse the nations otherwise? Patience, my child. Okay. Patience. Sorry to get ahead of you, my bad. I'm happy to have you, have you ahead of me, but I want to catch up to you. All right, now, as I said, the dynamic is the focal or central role of God here and the response to it, as is noted in verse 12. How are the nations possessing this reflection of God's act of reversing them? How is Israel Judah possessing this by this Focus and centered upon God's own agency and divine act. It comes from the name of the Lord. Being focused upon the name of the Lord is the dynamic force of this reversal. It's the dynamic center of this reversal. All right, let's summarize then. In this narrative time, on that day, and in this narrative space, on the holy mountain, God is going to initiate an act as the agent of change, reversal. He is going to remove from the midst of his people in his holy mountain, those who shamefully despise, hate, and are indifferent to his name. He is going to remove those who arrogantly flaunt themselves with vaunted pride, super egos of unrestrained narcissism. He is going to remove those who delight in wrongdoing, lawless wrongdoing. He is going to remove those who do not do the right thing, the proper thing, the lawful thing, such as those he will remove from his holy mountain on that critical day. The Lord God is going to remove on that day, at that time, from the midst of his people, 
those who dwell on his holy mountain. All liars. All those whose hatred of the truth is an attack upon God himself, the very truth. All deceivers, all connivers, all perjurers, all stonewallers, all mendacious spinmeisters, God will remove such as those whose tongues, whose lips, whose mouths pour forth lies and falsehoods and untruths as the rivers pour forth polluted and perverse waters. Judah will reflect the nations on that day in that mountain. Not just the Israel of God of the former age, but the nations will mirror the people of God. Yea, the nations will be united with the people of God, so that both Israel, Judah, and the Gentile nations will reflect, will mirror God himself. They will be one heart, one mind, one people of God shoulder to shoulder, Jew and Gentile alike, worshiping on that day, on that holy mountain, God himself, the mirror into which they gaze, and the image of God himself mirrored in them in return. For the name of the Lord will be precious and sweet to the people of God, Jew and Gentile alike, on that day, in that holy mountain. His name will be upon their lips. Their tongues shall lift up his glorious name. Their mouths shall declare, proclaim, bear witness to his mighty deeds, his acts of redemption, his works of conversion, his deeds of transformation, the indwelling delight, love, passion, affection, possession of the name, the saving name. The redemptive ingathering name, that all-powerful, regenerating, sanctifying name of the Lord, whose name is the Lord our God, Bakirev, in the midst. Yes, this is eschatological. Yes, this is a perfect picture. Yes, this is a portrait of the reflection of those out of the nations in the image of God renewed and transformed 
reflecting that image back to himself on his holy mountain in that everlasting day. You realize, of course, that the fulfillment of this projection and reversal is impossible in this world. They will do no wrong. That is only possible in the heaven of God's everlasting mountain. It is only possible in the everlasting day of that everlasting mountain dwelling of God the Lord, who mirrors himself perfectly, finally, and completely by totally reversing all of that which is tainted with sin and rebellion and corruption and deceit and disobedience on that day when he brings those out of the nations as those out of Israel, Judah, before his glorious and everlasting face in his holy mountain. The projection here is a projection which requires heaven itself for its fruition. It can only be accomplished in that arena, in that dimension, in that transcendent world. Now, to reinforce that, we look at verse 11 in a little more detail and observe the symmetry of the beginning and end of the verse. We've already pointed this out, but now we want to note a couple of additional things about how this verse is structured. It begins with a prepositional phrase, in or on that day. It is followed, that prepositional phrase, by a no or not clause. So, in or on that day, not X, Y, Z. In this case, not shame. Then at the end of the verse, there is a prepositional phrase again, in or on the mountain, which is preceded by a not or no clause. Never again on my holy mountain. In between this carefully constructed symmetry of the prepositional phrase plus a negative clause and a prepositional phrase preceded by a negative clause. In, beside this, in between this carefully laid out parallel pattern is the sandwich of I will move, remove from your midst. The negative on that day, in that time, in that space, the negative will be removed. 
what is sandwiched in between features draws attention to God's act of transformation, God's act of perfect reversal and restoration. So then, what we learned about Israel Judah's character in chapter 1, and we've also learned more about it in chapter 3, what we have learned is reversed specifically. For instance, in chapter 3, verse 5, we are told that they are shamelessly unrighteous, shamelessly unjust. That is what characterizes Israel, Judah, at this time in Zephaniah's history. In this time, in this space, Israel, Judah, shamelessly unrighteous and unjust. That will be reversed in verse 11 of chapter 3. That shame will be taken away. There will be no shame in this day and at that place. The reversal is within the paradigm of the text. Second, notice the word rebellious, which is characterizing Israel, Judah's nature in verse 1 of chapter 3. If you were to describe the chief act of rebellion of Israel, Judah, down through her history, what would you call, what would you name? Idolatry, exactly. Chief pattern of idolatry, which was listed in chapter 1. Remember chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, the description of the idols that the children of Judah were worshiping, even in the temple courts. That rebellion will be turned to its obverse, to its reverse. There will be no rebellion in verse 11 of chapter 3. It will be removed. Their pride in verse 11 of chapter 3, their haughty arrogance will be turned and reversed by humbleness and lowliness, verse 12. Their deeds in verse 7 of chapter 3, which are corrupt, their corrupt deeds will be reversed in chapter 3, verse 11. Their deeds will be removed. They will be forgiven. They will be cleansed from their corrupt defilement. Within, then, the pattern of this third chapter, the characterization of Israel, Judah, is being transformed. It's being reversed. It's being projected into a different, another narrative time, a different, another narrative space. But it is complete. It is perfect. It is fulfilled. All right, now, come to verse 12. 
Now, we pointed out that word leave already as part of our reverse paradigm. And I've given you the Hebrew form sha'ar there. And here in verse 12, it is a verb. It is the first word in the verse in the Hebrew text. So we're reminded that in verse 12, leave literally in your midst, versus, verse 11, remove from your midst. A lowly people. He's going to leave a humble and lowly people. What people is he going to leave? In verse 13. The remnant. The remnant. Right now, you understand something more about this language of the nations as well as this language about Israel, Judah. People here are the remnant. What kind of a remnant? The Apostle Paul has that precisely articulated phrase in Romans 11.5, which defines this word completely. The remnant, wherever it occurs, is the remnant according to the election of grace. The remnant then of Israel, Judah, which is going to participate in this narrative space and in this narrative time, is the remnant according to the election of grace out of Israel, Judah. The remnant of the nations which are going to participate in that narrative time and in that narrative space is the remnant according to the election of grace. There is nothing else operating underneath this remnant concept than the electing grace of God for those whom he has chosen and predestinated out of the nations. So there's no universalism here of all the nations being converted or most of the nations being converted. It is the grace of God that makes the transformation in the nations. It is the grace of God that makes the reversal of the pattern of those called out of the nations. It is the grace of God that regenerates those out of the nations. They are part of the remnant according to the election of grace, even as those of Jewish blood are part of that remnant according to the election of grace. It is the elect people of God, Jew and Gentile alike, which is folded into this narrative time and narrative space. The suggestion 
from within Zephaniah that these nations completely, universally, are going to participate in this reversal runs aground over this word. Remnant as it runs aground over that word when Paul uses it when he talks about those who are called and predestinated and justified and glorified from the seed of Abraham as well as from the promise of Abraham that the nations would be blessed through his seed. Therefore, there is a particularistic, there is a particularistic and elective principle underneath this, underneath this term. The Apostle Paul defines it as such. There is no universalism here except the universalism of the elect. There is no every person out of every nation here at some time in the future history of the world except the elect. It is always the elect, and that is a particularistic concept. Particular individuals chosen and elect, predestinated from before the foundation of the world from the Gentile nations and from the Israel of God of the Old Testament. Randy. It's even more glaring if you, if you understand it from, uh, from the concept of being set apart. Isn't, isn't that... Do you want to add sanctification to election? Well, it's part of the whole ball of wax. It is. That is, you cannot have election without sanctification, and you can't have sanctification without election. And, but it doesn't make sense to set apart something if there's nothing to be set apart from, is my point. You know, so that's why it's more glaring from that viewpoint. I, and you're thinking of being set I'm offering this up. You're thinking of being set apart from judgment, condemnation, is that what you're thinking of? Set apart from the world. Set apart from That's the world. That's the whole idea of okay. runs throughout the Bible. Okay. Very good. Any questions or comments? All right. Well, we'll take a break now and we'll come. You do have another one? Yeah, back on the previous page, I was trying to pay attention and get it, but I missed it. What goes in that line next to dynamic? Focused or centered on the name of the Lord. You'll notice that phrase in verse 12. Got all your blanks filled in? All right, as we come back now. We're at verse 12, looking at that word humble. And here we're going to borrow from Jesus' phrase in Matthew 5, 3. The humble are the poor in spirit, 
by which our Lord means those who are not obsessed with themselves. In other words, they wouldn't be taking selfies all the time. And they are not those whose wealth consists in the riches of their self-esteem. Now, there is a uh, worthy self-esteem in the sense that you're made in the image of God and you have dignity thereby. But this vaunted self-esteem that is the basis of self-promotion and self-aggrandizement is not what is involved in Christ's comment or Zephaniah's comment about those who are in the holy mountain of the Lord. The other term here is lowly, and we could also borrow from Christ. He was meek and lowly. But here, the Hebrew has an emphasis upon dependence. And in this context, it is dependent upon God's own strength and power. So the lowly are those who revel in the presence and the power of the Lord because they're totally, absolutely dependent upon him. Now, the word refuge could also be translated hiding place, covering, as in the sense of a canopy, a shelter. And this refuge is the Lord himself. It's actually the name of the Lord himself because in that hiding place, in that covering, in that shelter, there is trust directed to no other save him and his wonderful and all-glorious name. Now, this phrase, name of the Lord, is not only used here in Zephaniah 3. It's also been used before. Does anyone happen to remember where it was used before? If you had a cross-reference Bible, does it tell you where it was used before? All right, and I'll tell you where it was used before. If you turn back to verse 9, And there you find the very same phrase, the name of the Lord. But who is using the name of the Lord here? Who is calling on the name of the Lord here? It is the nations. And who is it in verse 12? It is Israel Judah, the remnant of Israel Judah. All right, so we have this mutual focus. They are both taking refuge in the beloved name. The name that is above every name, naming the name of the Lord himself. Those out of the nations and those out of Israel Judah. All right, we come then to verse 13. And as we had an initial word, that is the first word in the verse in verse 12, that was related to Sha'ar, 
Here you'll notice that the first three letters of the first word in verse 13 are the same as the first three letters that you see in verse 12 up above. This is, in fact, a cognate of the word for leave. It is the noun remnant. You might say those who are left behind. This is pronounced shif-erith. It is a noun form. It's actually a feminine noun form. So we have the verb in verse 12. You have the noun in verse 13. It is the same basic lemma or root in Hebrew, and it is in the same place in each verse. It is in the first position in verse 12 and verse 13. We therefore have a hook pattern which ties verse 13 to verse 12 by virtue of the initial word or the initial word root. Now, in this 13th verse, there is another phrase that is similar to chapter 2, verse 7. So let's keep our finger in 3.13, and let's turn back to chapter 2, verse 7. And in comparing the two verses, let's see if you can pick out the phrase which is similar. Chapter 2, verse 7. There's two similar phrases. Well, there, there are actually three words which are the same. Uh, two words which are the same, but there is a difference. Gaze and lie down. Lie down is one, all right? And who is going to lie down in chapter 2, verse 7? It's in the houses of Ashkelon that they will lie down. Who are the they? I want to say the house of Judah. The house of Judah. So we're going to say Judah will lie down in 2.7. And who's going to lie down in 13, 3.13? Remnant of whom? Israel is going to lie down in 3.13. Why does he do that? Why does Zephaniah say Judah will lie down in 2.7? You notice he uses the same Hebrew form, Ravats, in 2.7 and 3.13. It's the same verb. And he says Israel will lie down in 3.13. The true Israel will be composed of the remnant according to the election of grace out of Israel and Judah. So he's fusing the whole nation of Israel paradigm. He's talking about restoration of a remnant from both Israel and Judah, from the ten tribes as well as the two tribes. And the nations are also going to be included in this remnant uh, picture, yes. But here, he's placing this lie-down motif in parallel, in synchrony with uh, 2.7 and 3.13. Because he's uniting the nation. 
He's uniting the remnant out of the divided nation. He's bringing the union of the nation in this narrative time and in this narrative space. Now, what kind of an image is that which is attached to lying down? They shall feed and lie down. What kind of an image is that? Psalm 23, it's peaceful, yes? Rest. Restful, yes? Satisfied, they're full. Okay, we can say they're satisfied, yes? Trusting. They're trusting, okay. You're doing well? Without. What kind of setting do you see here? Psalm 23, what kind of setting? Pastoral setting, exactly. This is pastoral language. This is a language of pastures and flocks. In fact, that's exactly what we see in 2.6, don't we? Pastures and folds for flocks, where they will lie down. All right, so the pastoral image of peace and quiet, contentment, satisfaction, is part of this narrative space. The narrative space on this mountain or in this arena. It is the space of a shepherd. It is the safe space of God himself as a shepherd. It is the space and time when the Lord is perfectly and perpetually and eternally my shepherd. This is pastoral image, imagery rather, and it projects this beautiful sense of contentment and quiet which goes along with still pastures. Now, what what is the appeal here? If this language, 11, 12, and 13, is the language of proclamation as well as prophecy, what's the appeal? of the rhetoric here? What's the draw of the imagery here? Is he trying to draw his audience into here? He's trying to draw them into a narrative time and a narrative space which is out of this world. It is a place where God himself dwells. It is a place where God himself dwells the spirits of just men and women made perfect. It is a time and a place where the Jerusalem above and the General Assembly of the firstborn of the Most High God dwell in peace and refuge in quiet forever and ever and ever. In the world of God's holy mountain the world of where he is in his glory, in the perfection of his grace, in the completion of his love, where he himself is in the very midst of his elect remnant from the nations and from the Israel of God. In that place and in that time where God here where God is and the mirror of his image 
is reflected in his redeemed people. The mirror of God's image is reflected in this narrative space and in this narrative time it is reflected perfectly in his people out of the nations and out of Israel Judah. There is no shame in God, is there? There is no shame in those whom he has redeemed in that place and in that time. There is no rebellion in God. There is no rebellion in those whom God has redeemed in that place and in that time. There is no pride in God. There is no pride in those from the nations and Israel, Judah, whom he has redeemed in that narrative place and in that narrative time. There is no wrongdoing in God. And there is no wrongdoing in those whom he has redeemed in that narrative place and in that narrative time. Nor are there any lies in God. No deceit or mendacity in him. And there are no lies in those who bear his image perfectly reflected in that narrative place and in that narrative time. That divine and supernatural mirror has been incarnated. That divine and supernatural image has been incarnated in one who is the very mirror of the glory of God, in the one who is the very essential image of God himself. There is no shame in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, for he bore the shame. There is no rebellion in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, for he took sinful rebellion upon himself. There is no pride in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, for he was meek and lowly. There was no wrongdoing in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, for he shouldered and carried all our wrongs. And there is no deceit in the mouth of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. For he bore the reproach of lies, falsehoods, untruths. He bore them all in our place. The projection of the reversal here in Zephaniah into a narrative time 
and narrative space is marvelously and magnificently provisionally fulfilled in one person who accomplished it in history and took that accomplishment with him into glory. The remnant, according to the election of grace, was carried along with him because of the union of their renewed image in the very one who is the image and likeness of the living God. As we will see next time, it is more than the reversal here. It is reversal by the mechanism of incarnation and glorification. For where is that image bearer? Where is that one who is the very reflection and mirror of his father? He sits in heaven at the right hand of glory and says to you, come into this narrative space and this narrative time, for I prepared a place for you there, and it shall never pass away. Any questions? All right, we'll continue next time. Shall we close in prayer? We give you thanks, O Lord, for your superlative revelation through your servant Zephaniah. And for the wonder of that dimension outside of time and space, in the eternity of your presence. Wonder of that dimension where you are the mirror image of the perfect reversal of all who sit at your feet. How we bless and thank you for the accomplishment of this in your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that inheritance which can never be corrupted, nor can it ever be shaken, for it is anchored eternally in the heavens at the right hand of your glory. And so continue to open our eyes to the wonder of what you have prophesied through your Old Testament servants the glorious majesty of the imagery and rhetoric of their discourses and their oracles. And let us see Jesus in it all. And in seeing him, we may by faith come into that time and that place, which is everlasting. 
We ask these things humbly in Jesus' name.